This message is from Living Rock Church, and we trust you'll be really equipped, envisioned, and encouraged as you listen today. Before I continue with um, talking about the marriage covenant part two this morning, uh, just sit back. We're going to just watch um, a few minutes of video clips that will pick up on some things we talked about last week and set the scene very much for this week. So uh, if we can play the video, thank you. Okay. Lots of uh, interesting um, comments, perspectives. Shifts, fudges, clarity, it's all in there really. (laughs) And um, let me just also, by way of uh, an extended introduction, just want to quote you something from a man named Matthew Paris, who is a a writer for The Times and The Spectator, and um, is um, is a openly gay and openly atheist. Uh, But he made this comment after the Archbishop of Dublin uh, described the Irish referendum uh, recently in which the Irish uh, population approved same-sex marriage and he described that as a social revolution that the church kind of was out of kilter with. This is what Matthew Paris says. Even as a gay atheist, I wince to see the philosophical mess that religious conservatives are making of their case. Is there nobody of any intellectual stature left in our English church or the Roman church to frame the argument against Christianity's slide into just going with the flow of social and cultural change? 62% in a referendum does not cause a sin in the eyes of God to cease to be a sin. What has the Irish referendum shown us? It is that a majority of people in the Republic of Ireland in 2015 do not agree with their church's centuries-old doctrine that sexual relationships between two people of the same gender are a sin. Fine. We cannot doubt that finding. But can a preponderance of public opinion reverse the polarity between virtue and vice? Would it have occurred to, for a moment to Moses, let alone God, that he'd better defer to Molech worship because that's what most of the Israelites wanted to do? It must surely be implicit in the claim of any of the world's great religions that on questions of morality, a majority may be wrong. What does the Archbishop of Dublin now have to say to the 743,300 people who voted to uphold what their priests taught them was God's will. Have some of us made the mistake of taking the church at its word? Was it always, anyway, about going with the flow? That's the gay atheist throwing down the gauntlet and saying it's time for the church to say what God says. So let me just, um, let me first of all recap a little bit from last week. So the next slide is a summary of the conclusions uh, I reached with you last week. First of all, that God has created mankind in his image as two distinct genders the same kind, but two expressions. And that, we're told, is in the image of God. God is not man and woman, but God is three persons who are one essence, but three expressions. And the making of man and woman in in two two expressions of the one kind uh, is a reflection of that. They complement each other perfectly. They find their completeness in their oneness. Secondly, God created marriage to unite the man and the woman, and he did so precisely because of their differences. When Jesus is, is quoting from, Matthew, from Genesis 2, he says, God, God made them male and female, man and woman, and for this reason, 
they became married. The reason for their marriage was their distinctiveness, their separateness, their, their maleness and their femaleness because he was a man, she was a woman. Thirdly, God defined marriage in creation as one man leaving his parents, being united to one woman and the two becoming one flesh. It is a joining at the deepest possible level. The Bible calls it a covenant. And something happens that is, uh, that is deeper even than the, the becoming of one flesh. Fourthly, God blesses marriage as the context for intimacy, sexual fulfillment, and fruitfulness. It's a God-given protection against immorality. And Hebrews says marriage is to be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure. Fifthly, God loves marriage and therefore hates divorce. But divorce is permissible, not for any and every reason, as it had become in the Old Testament, but on two biblical grounds of adultery, which is uh, one translation of the word porneia, and abandonment, another word, chorizo. We need to be very careful in our definition of those words. But in each case, the innocent party is then free to remarry. Number six, the only biblically permitted, divinely blessed sexual acts are those between a husband and wife expressed within their marriage covenant. And the Bible commands purity before marriage and faithfulness within marriage. This prohibits every type of sexual immorality. None of us is free to indulge our desires and appetites as we want. We must all exercise self-control. And in Ephesians 5, it says there must be no hint of sexual immorality amongst us. Number seven, all Christian dating should be with a view to a potential marriage. And since believer and unbeliever cannot share at the deepest level, there is an, um, a, an unequal yoking or a mismatch which means they should not get married. Therefore, they should not start dating. Number eight, God's relationship with his people is consistently described in marital terms. I said to you last week, my marriage with Deborah is far, about far more than our enjoyment, our home, the context we have had to raise our children. It's a picture of Christ and his church. Yeah. And ultimately, for me, that becomes the biggest reason for all in the things that we're saying. We'll come back to that. And lastly, we said we are for biblical marriage. We're for all people. But above all, we are for God and his word, and we will never compromise on it. What has been um, founded in creation can never be changed by culture. Okay. Now, I know that's a long introduction and a long recap, but it's vital that we have those things in place for where we're going to go next, which is to deal with a couple of, I'll, I'll call them subsidiary issues. I mean subsidiary to the marriage covenant. I'm not, I'm not diminishing the issues, they're big, big issues, but they, they follow from these things that we are saying. And the first of those concerns homosexuality, and depending on the time this morning, I also want to say something about issues concerning being transgender. Okay? Now, why are these such big issues? Well, I believe it's because the liar and the thief has made marriage and family a key battleground in his offensive against the authority of the word. The authority of the word is the issue. Marriage is a battleground, and therefore these become big issues. And we must address them with great care and sensitivity, with great love, with great compassion, and with great respect and great honor for the word and for the God of the word. Just to restate, God is good. The Bible is eternal. Satan is a liar and a thief. 
The gospel of the kingdom is God's total answer to man's total need. And new birth makes us new creations. So, the Bible defines marriage as between one man and one woman and blesses sexual intimacy only within the context of such marriage. It therefore excludes any sexual intimacy outside such a marriage. And that includes fornication, adultery, sex between men, sex between women. And as we'll see in a minute, those things in the Bible are, are, are examples of this word porneia, sexual immorality. Question for us, therefore, is where does this leave those who consider themselves homosexual? It's interesting that within a generation, Western attitudes towards homosexuality have undergone an absolute paradigm shift. Until 1967, homosexual acts were criminal in the UK. Homosexuality is now not only widely tolerated, but is accepted and increasingly celebrated. And there's a new sexual ethic that allows very little tolerance for dissenting views. Rick, alias Piers, mentioned that earlier on. Governments around the world have legislated. It was like dominoes falling, wasn't it? Governments around the world legislating to uh, allow same-sex marriage. Some Christian leaders have called for a re-examination of the Bible's teachings, for a more inclusive approach, and, um, t- and to redress stigmatization. Question is, can cultural shifts allow any reinterpretation of Scripture? Can we endorse loving, monogamous, same-sex relationships? How can we offer appropriate pastoral care and support to people affected by these issues? And just to make clear, we're not singling out homosexual activity for special analysis or for any kind of condemnation, especially. We're dealing with it because it's become the focus of the debate. And so we must clearly state our position. So what does the Bible say? Well, again, this is not my opinion. It's not, it's not the opinion of the elders. Well, it is the opinion of the elders, but it, that's not the source of this. Our opinion by itself has no weight, no authority... This concerns what does the Word of God say. And um, there are 12 references, direct references to homosexual activity in the Bible, and they fall into four groups. So we'll turn to them and have a look at these things together. So Genesis 19 is the story of um, Sodom and Gomorrah. And in Genesis 19, verse 5... You know the story. I trust you know the story. We don't have time. There's so much to cover, so much to do today. Um, we don't have time to go into all the background. I trust you will, you will read these things for yourself if, if you need to um, be clear of the, the context and, and the stories. Please do that. But in, in Genesis 9, two angels arrive at a town called Sodom. And um, Genesis 19. And... Uh, and they find Lot sitting in the gateway of the city, and they, they bow down to him. And, and he takes them into his house to offer them hospitality. And um, verse 4 says, Before they'd gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like to them, but don't do anything to these men, for they've come under the protection of my roof. It's a pretty ugly story, and we won't read the rest of it. There's a similar story in Judges, Judges chapter 19 again, and um, this concerns a place called Gibeah. So uh, Genesis, keep going on, 
past Deuteronomy and Joshua, get to Judges. Judges 19, Genesis 19, Judges 19. And here is a very similar story of a... um, The opening verse is interesting. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who'd lived in a uh, remote area of the hill country took a concubine and uh, and then we we carry on down to um, verse uh, 20. You're welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed him and fed his donkeys. After they'd washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. And verse 22, while they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. This man is my guest. Don't do this disgraceful thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I'll bring them out to you now and you can use them and, to, and do to them whatever you wish. But to this man, don't do such a disgraceful thing. Again, the, the story is, is ghastly. That's the first pair of, of references, similar stories. Secondly, in Leviticus, so we just go back to, um, to just before Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Um, in Leviticus, there are lots of laws, lots of instructions. Some of them are about ceremonial things. Some of them are about social things. Others are about moral things. Chapter, nine, uh, chapter 18 in, in the NIV is headed up unlawful sexual relations. And there's a whole list of um, prohibited sexual relations, mainly concerning um, incest, sex with close relatives. Uh, and then verse 22 says, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Verse 23 says, do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. Um, etc. And verse 27 says, For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out. Anyone who does these, any of these th- detestable things, um, etc. We'll come back to that in a moment. So there are references there. Chapter 20 uh, then goes through the penalties for all these things, um, which in most of them is a death penalty. Um, and then uh, there are also some references, we won't look at them, several references to what are called shrine prostitutes, male shrine prostitutes in, in Deuteronomy and the Book of Kings. Uh, but we'll just, we'll just leave it with those Levitical prohibitions. Thirdly area is there's, um, there's a passage in Romans chapter 1. So we turn there. Romans 1 where Paul is describing the the, uh, pagan, the pagan, ungodly ways, talks about God's wrath coming upon mankind for various uh, reasons. And um, in verse 18, he talks about the, um, the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Let me just say this, you'll see this. Be aware of the links between truth and truth and lies and behavior. There's a direct link between what we believe and what we do. So that behavior will line up with our beliefs. And you'll see that in just a moment because in verse 24... Romans 1.24, he says, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. 
And in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion, this um, second generation NIV says. The fourth place, and then we'll come back to all these in a minute, is in, um, there's a couple of lists of uh, various sinful acts, one in 1 Corinthians 6, You're okay with the, with the page turning? Yep. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, that's that general word, poneia again, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. Your your version might just put those together, but they're actually separate things. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is important. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's the first of the list. The second, sort of similar, in 1 Timothy 1. And then uh, we're just going to say some things about them. We're not going to turn to too many more scriptures now. 1 Timothy 1, verse 9. 1 Timothy 1, verse 9. We also know that that law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, for uh, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, or um, yours might say uh, men who have sex with other men, for slave traders and liars and perjurers. And, and here's that link again between behavior and belief and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Okay, so we've read some scriptures. Just to say a few things about them. First of all, all those references are negative. In the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah, the the homosexual activity is described as a wicked thing. In Leviticus, there's there's lots of phrases there, but they're said to be detestable things that defile God's people. The shrine prostitutes, if you read about those, are examples of of detestable practices of the pagan nations. So so very negative connotations. In Romans 1, gosh, it doesn't take much in there. It's described as a sinful desire, a sexual impurity, an unnatural, shameful lust, a shameful act, and a perversion or an error. And and just to pick up that that theme I'm trying to run through here, that word error, it means a wandering or a forsaking of the right path in either doctrine or morals or both. And um, and when we read in Romans 1, um, these people have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That that was the source of many of the things Paul was talking about. In 1 Corinthians 6, um, homosexual offenders, uh, men who have sex with men, uh, it says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. In 1 Timothy 1, that activity is said to be contrary to the sound doctrine. So nowhere in the Bible, and Steve Chalk... um, acknowledges this, nowhere in the Bible is homosexual activity ever described as something positive to be accepted, to be undertaken, or to be embraced. However, let me make two statements alongside that that are very important for us. The first is that nowhere is homosexual activity ever dealt with in isolation. It's always dealt with alongside other sinful activities. Nowhere is it ever described as anything other than a sinful activity. It's not described as a sickness. 
It's not described as an orientation. It's not described as a disorder of any type. But it is an activity like every other sinful activity that is to be turned away from. All forms of poneia and other words like it are seen to be, as Romans 1 says, sinful desires. In Galatians 5, 19, just want to make a note of that, it talks about acts of the flesh. Sexual immorality being amongst the acts of the flesh. And Colossians 3, 5 says such things are to be put to death. So there's a language around these things that, that first of all, only describes it as sinful, but never describes homosexual, homosexual activity by itself. It's, it's one of a number of things. That's the first um, statement to make alongside the statement that it's never positive. The second is this, that every reference to homosexuality is a reference to homosexual activity rather than to an attraction, to what people nowadays would call an orientation. We'll come on to that. And that is vital for us. We must distinguish between what people might feel and what they might do. Big differences. Now, over the last 25 or so years, some Christian uh, scholars, commentators, have argued that the biblical provisions, uh, sorry, the biblical prohibitions, do not apply to faithful, monogamous, loving, same-sex relationships. And that we should embrace and support same-sex couples who wish to express their love in a uh, faithful, monogamous, loving way, committed way. Some argue that homosexual orientation is no different, really, to being left-handed. It's not the norm, but it's not unnatural. And they, they attempt to give biblical support to their case by reinterpreting those key texts. So, first of all, they argue that the wickedness in Sodom and Gabeah was not about homosexuality at all, but was a violation of local customs of hospitality. That these hosts had taken the angels in one case, the Levite man in the other, they'd taken them into their home, and men were trying to invade the the privacy of this hospitable relationship. So that is is a reinterpretation of that, but I'll comment on these in a moment. Secondly, they argue that the Levitical texts are to do with religious and ceremonial matters and therefore are all consumed in Christ and no longer relevant to us today. Thirdly, they argue that Paul's comments in Romans 1 are directed, and this this comes to the the nub of what I was saying earlier on about the, the difference they're trying to make, are directed against a promiscuous form of homosexuality that was common in Rome, common in Roman pagan culture, but does not apply to loving, faithful, monogamous, same-sex relationships today. Indeed, um, some of the writers say that the concept of a homosexual orientation was unknown to Paul and unknown in Rome. The only kind of same-sex relationships were of a promiscuous kind. And fourthly, they argue that the, the lists in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1 are directed against, again, promiscuity and male prostitution, not against faithful, loving, same-sex relationships. And in some cases, the argument goes that just as women are now liberated and slaves are now liberated, so uh, those who regard themselves as homosexuals should also be liberated. We believe those arguments are invalid. And let me comment on, on each of them. Firstly, and I read, I read the whole passage so you'd see this. 
the language used against Sodom and the judgment upon it suggests something far more than hospitality was at stake. Moreover, the fact that Lot offers his daughters to the men, the fact that the the host in Gibeah offers offers his guests concubine to the men, proves that to be the case. It's not an issue of hospitality. And more to the point, Jude chapter 1, verse 7, just before book of Revelation, Jude chapter 1, verse 7, says, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. The word is clear, folks. The second um, uh, attempt to reinterpret concerning those those Levitical laws, um, which suggests that they they are they're no longer relevant today. Well, of course it's true. Aspects of Leviticus are all to do with ceremony, to do with worship, to do with rituals, and are fulfilled in Christ. We don't have an altar anymore. Of course it's true. Some of those um, some of those laws and instructions in, in Leviticus are to do with the social conditions of the day, and especially to do with the fact that there are a couple of million people wandering through a desert who need to stay clean. When was the last time you called Richard Jones to come and inspect mildew in your house? I do think we should bring that back, by the way. He hasn't got enough to do at the moment. That was a joke, folks. But those laws I read out to you, come on, folks. Are you, can we honestly say they're about ceremony or about social... They're about moral issues that are as relevant today as ever. All of them. Read the, read the whole list. None of them are appropriate today. The argument that Romans 1 is, is addressing, and, 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 the, and the lists in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, are addressing a homosexual promiscuity or a temple prostitution also, just don't stand up. Emperor Nero himself celebrated two, perhaps three weddings to long-term male partners. It just isn't the case that the only type of same-sex relationships were promiscuous ones in Rome. And Paul is not simply addressing that. In fact, the language Paul uses, he talks about giving up what is natural for what is unnatural. He's talking about the natural created order. And therefore, his instructions are relevant for us today. Let me ask those reinterpreters, which of the other aspects of the lists in 1 Corinthians or 1 Timothy would you like to reinterpret? If homosexual activity is now acceptable, why not fornication? Why not idolatry? Why not adultery? Why not theft, greed, drunkenness, slander, and swindling? Why not murder, adultery, slave trading, the other things we read about? Why not, if you go back to Leviticus, why not bestiality and incest? We don't accept the reinterpretations at all. But above all, the idea that the New Testament might endorse faithful, loving, same-sex relationships fails to acknowledge that God has created and defined marriage as the union of one one man and one woman who become one flesh. God provided no alternative type of marriage and no alternative setting for sexual intimacy. Ultimately, homosexual activity is biblically prohibited because all sexual activity outside a biblical marriage is prohibited. As Paul makes clear, these things are contrary to the natural created order. John Stott has said this, since that order, heterosexual monogamy, was established by creation, not culture, Its validity is both permanent and universal. There can be no liberation 
from God's created norms. True liberation is found only in accepting them. Now, we understand the desire for love, the desire for inclusivity, but love doesn't justify homosexual activity any more than it justifies adultery or fornication. Well, I love her, but I'm married to my wife. And whilst the gospel is totally inclusive, it's for anyone, it's for everyone, it requires us to turn from sin, repent, and be born again in order to enter the kingdom. And then make the exclusive confession that Jesus is Lord. The issue, friends, is concerning the word of God. What do we therefore say about same-sex attraction? Because so far, all I've referred to is homosexual activity. And not everyone who experiences same-sex attraction engages in same-sex activity. And there's a big difference. And it might be helpful if we consider a, a sort of a spectrum uh, at the top there. That um, some will feel, will experience some intimate sexual, some intimate or sexual feelings towards somebody of the same sex. There's an attraction. Others will experience that attraction predominantly or exclusively, and they might say, we might talk about, or we might, people will talk about a homosexual orientation. And then, thirdly, some will, will identify themselves define themselves as being homosexual or gay and making that their identity. And then fourthly, some will act upon those feelings by engaging in same-sex intimacy and intercourse. And that's the point at which we talk about sin. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is important. This is important. It's also easy to see how somebody can move from from one to the next. Once once, um, an identity has been established, it's much much easier to engage in an activity. Uh, We believe homosexual attraction or orientation or even an identity may be the result of conscious moral choices where people actively decide to follow a certain course. We believe it may be the result of something unconscious, the result of living in a fallen world, where human experience is not the way God originally intended it, remembering that the fall corrupted every aspect of humanity, including our sexuality. We're not saying people are born gay or that there's a it's a genetic condition, but for some, there's something quite unconscious might take place. For many people, I believe believing and embracing a lie about our real identity is at the heart of the issue. And I want to recommend to you um, to have a look on, on YouTube at, at a, a, video, a video there by a lady called Dr. Rosaria Butterfield. She calls it my train wreck conversion. And I'm going to quote from her in a minute, but she describes living her life as a, in her words, a leftist lesbian. Very militant. uh, Very, very uh, against the church. Absolutely opposed to scripture. An academic who was head of feminine studies at American University. And she describes the moment when she, in her words, she realized it had all been a case of mistaken identity. I want to just quote from her in a minute. Whatever the origins, whatever the roots, whatever the degree of temptation or sin experienced, we believe the gospel is always good news and power to save and liberate. Paul says, I'm not, and he says this just before he talks about the condition 
in that Roman culture. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So how do we support and counsel and encourage people experiencing same-sex attraction or who have experienced same-sex activity? Just to say, we haven't worked out all the scenarios. But we humbly offer the following points. Number one, like Jesus, we must be full of grace and truth. Just as we would with anyone facing any other issue or any other temptation or dealing with any other sin. Being full of grace means we do not reject, stigmatize, or diminish anyone. We reach out with the love of God and with the hope of his transforming power. Paul says, amongst you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. I would say, amongst us there must not even be a hint of homophobia. God loves the world. He doesn't hate anyone. Being full of truth means we'll always go back to the word We'll always go back to the beginning. We'll always go back to God's original intention. We'll always go back to creation. And we'll always believe that the maker knows best. The second thing I want to say is uh, we must be like Jesus, who when he was confronted with an issue of sexual immorality of pornea, although in this case it was a woman caught in adultery, but it's it's just another aspect of um, immorality, he... He confronted the immorality without compromising in any way, but without condemning. In fact, if you look at John chapter 8, verse 11 sometime, he says, you know, he bends down in the sand and he he writes down, and as, as all her detractors go, because nobody's without sin, he says, if anybody's without sin, you cast the first stone. None of them are without sin. None of us, none of us are in a position to cast the first stone. And when they'd all left, he says... Um, neither do I condemn you, but go away and leave your life of sin. He named the sinner's sin. He didn't fudge it. He didn't compromise on it, but he didn't condemn. And that way, he gave her a way out of her past and into freedom. That's really important. Thirdly, we will encourage anyone battling with same-sex attraction or, or with feelings of homosexual orientation or if they've fallen in this area we will encourage them and their families to come and talk with us knowing we are totally for you fourthly we will encourage counsel, support and pray with people struggling with these issues, that they might exercise discipline and self-control, abstaining from all actions they know to be contrary to the Word of God, to guard themselves, not to escalate that, that what could become a process of attraction, orientation, identity, activity. Fifthly, we will encourage counsel, support, and pray with them not to become identified by homosexuality. To find their identity in something bigger than their sexuality. We don't go around saying, I'm a heterosexual, I'm straight. We're humans. We're sons of God. We're daughters of God. Knowing that Satan is a liar and a thief, we must embrace the truth and reject every lie Because for many, homosexuality will be a case of mistaken identity. I've just got a couple of things. We'll we'll leave the the other issue of transgender to another day because it's plenty for one day. Let me just quote to you from this lady, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield. She says, I started to read the Bible. She was reading it for academic purposes originally. I read the way a glutton devours. I read it many times that first year in multiple translations. At a dinner gathering my partner and I were hosting, my transgendered friend 
cornered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand over mine. This Bible reading is changing you, Rosaria, she warned. With tremors, I whispered, what if it's true? What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we're all in trouble? She exhaled deeply, Rosaria, she said. She, she comments. I continued reading the Bible, all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired. But the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. And then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover. And an hour later, I sat in a pew at the something Reformed Presbyterian Church. I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. I counted the costs. And I did not like the maths on the other side of the equal sign. But God's promises rolled in like sets of waves into my world. One Lord's Day, the preacher preached on John 7, 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether my teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. This verse exposed the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. I'd expected that in all areas of life, understanding came before obedience. And I wanted God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. I wanted to be the judge, not the one being judged. But the verse promised understanding after obedience. I wrestled with the question, did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view? Or did I just want to argue with him? I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood. I prayed long into the unfolding of day. And when I looked in the mirror, I looked the same. But when I looked into my heart through the lens of the Bible, I wondered, am I a lesbian? Or has this all been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide marrow from soul, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? And then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus open-handed. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. I did not want to lose everything that I loved. But the voice of God sang a love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first, and then passionately, of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace, then community, and today in the shelter of a covenant family where one calls me wife and many call me mother. I've not forgotten the blood Jesus surrendered for this life. I find that very moving. We will encourage and counsel and support and pray for people to know the grace and power of God to live his way. Living for Christ is impossible for any of us in our own strength. But there's power in the blood. There's power in the cross. And there's power in the spirit to enable us to live for Christ. You know what? At the throne of grace, there's a high priest it even says he's been tempted in every way as we are. It definitely says he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And he has sufficient mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. We will encourage, support, counsel and pray with all who need to know total forgiveness for any sinful actions. And finally, we believe that when any person comes to Christ they begin to experience a change of identity. They begin to understand they've become a child of God. She puts it so well, doesn't she? They find a new biblical morality, embracing a new nature. 
and of part of this, we will expect, and this is, this is a statement I'm making in closing. I feel nervous saying it, but I believe it. We expect that issues of sexual identity and orientation will normalize around the person's God-given sexuality. Hope you caught that, folks. I'm going to say it again. We believe when any person comes to Christ, they experience a change of identity, and we expect that issues of sexual identity will normalize around the person's God-given sexuality. I just want to say in closing, as I did last week, we are for biblical marriage. We're for all people. We're for those who've been cheated or let down or walked on. Thank you, thank you for the questions we received. We'll deal with all those on a later day, including any questions you have from this morning. We're for everyone who's messed up, made mistakes. We're for everyone who wants to get it right. We're for those battling temptation. We are for those struggling with sexual identity, gender identity, which we've not even come on to yet. We're for everyone who needs a fresh start. We're for everyone seeking Christ. But above all, we are for God and we're for his word because we believe the gospel is God's total answer to man's total needs. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening today. For more information about Living Rock Church and for more great teaching, visit www.livingrockchurch.org.uk.